Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and helps us to see what you're saying to us. We pray that we would hear your voice through your word this evening and that it would cause us to turn to follow Jesus and live for him in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Do also follow through on the back of this uh, notice sheet. You'll find that helpful. In uh, 1994, a lady called Thelma Howard died just days before her 80th birthday in a modest two-bedroom bungalow in Los Angeles. For 30 years of her life, until 1981, Thelma Howard had worked as a maid, and her employers were none other than Walt and Lillian Disney. Now, she worked hard. She never complained. Every Christmas, Walt Disney would summon her to his office for her Christmas bonus. Now, no doubt she would have hoped for a small cash tip of some kind, but instead, each year, he gave her a piece of paper with some writing on it. And when she died in her modest bungalow, she was lonely and poor. But when her executors went through her possessions after her death, they found that those bits of paper were in fact stock in the Walt Disney Company. And by 1994, the stock she'd been given was worth $9 million. She had all the riches she could want, and yet she never knew it. Now, in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul is writing to Christians who are in danger of forgetting or or never seeing in the first place how rich and privileged they are in Christ. And actually, this is a danger for Christians in all places at all times, because we start to think, don't we, well, what actually have we got to boast in, we Christians? You know, the world around us seems to be having a much better time We Christians just look and feel, well, just rather weak and feeble and insignificant. You know, do Christians and churches really have what it takes to engage a busy, noisy, sophisticated world? Surely church is just increasingly irrelevant. I mean, look at the graphs of national church attendance. People will say, you know, look, they're going down. Maybe church is the problem. Maybe Christians ought to be doing something different. Well, Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians to challenge radically that view of the world. We heard in the reading from Acts, the first reading, what the church in Ephesus was up against. So uh, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It dominated Ephesus, both uh, visually due to its huge size, but also culturally and economically. And we heard Demetrius, the silversmith, was none too pleased about people becoming Christians, because when people became Christians, they stopped buying his silver models of Artemis. And you heard what he said about Paul. He said that this preacher is saying that man-made gods are no gods at all. 
oh, you know, what nonsense. This is going to upset everyone in our great city. And it's, it's going to mean that the great temple of Artemis will be discredited. It's unthinkable. We can't allow this. And there's this massive riot with people shouting for two hours. It was a fantastic line in the middle there. Did you, did you spot it? Just half the people there didn't even know why they were there. They were just caught up in this. But we just know that we're here because we, we need to you know, do something. But they were shouting and shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just imagine trying to be the church of Ephesus in the midst of that atmosphere. Not just that day, but every day in the shadow of the dominance of this temple and the cult and everything that stood, it stood for. The city clerk stands up and he speaks about the, uh, he says, come on guys, we know the undeniable facts. Did you, did you hear that? You know, the undeniable facts. What are the undeniable facts that nobody can dispute? Well, of course, that the, you know, the great temple of Artemis and the image of Artemis came from heaven, fell out of heaven and here we have them. You know, this is what we all believe as a culture. These are the things we hold. And these Christians are challenging that, and we can't be doing with that. And actually, you know, let's... um, But almost, he's almost just dismissing what the Christians are saying, because it's so ridiculous that they would try and uh, dispute those uh, indisputable and undeniable facts. What What are the undeniable facts in our culture today that, you know, just taken as, taken for granted when you're watching the... QI or whatever on the telly where people are, you know, just the talking heads, you know, what, what would it be? You know, there is no God for a start, might be the first one. And, and I'm sure you can think of other things that would follow. You know, these are the undeniable facts of our culture. Imagine, what, what's it like to be the church in Ephesus in that context? How do we feel in our context today in a culture that is thinking and feeling very different things? Well, Paul writes this letter to speak into that situation for the Ephesians. He writes it sometime later than, that, uh, than those events. We don't quite know when, but by the time he writes the letter, he's in prison, it seems, from the end of the letter. He's probably in Rome. And what does he want to say to these Christians in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, as he addresses them in verse 1? If you look, and what words of grace and peace does he have for them, as he calls it, verse 2? Well, he wants to radically change the centre of gravity of their entire view of the world. Christians, he's saying, you may feel small, you may feel insignificant, but I want you to realise how utterly, gloriously privileged you are. How rich you are. But the surprising thing is, that in order to see that privilege and feel those riches, you're going to have to do a bit of a revolution in the way that you think about yourself and the world around you. You're going to need to realise that the universe isn't about you. The universe ultimately is God-centred. And God has a plan that is Christ-centred. And the way God is working now through Christ in the world is church-centred. The universe is God-centred. God's plan is Christ-centred. The way God is working now through Christ in the world is church-centred. So do you notice what, what the universe and God's plan and God's way of working in the world are not? Well, they're not me-centred. Who gets the glory? Not me, God. Who achieves 
this plan that God has set out. Not me, Jesus. Who does this plan for the world involve? Well, in one sense it is me, but it is much more than me. It is the church, not just me. So as Paul sets out to show how privileged Christians are, he wants us to see that the question is not, how does God fit into my life? How does Jesus fit? How does church fit into my life? The question actually is, how do I fit into God's plan? How do I fit into his church? How do I fit into the new community centred on Christ? Now those are the big questions that we're going to see addressed and answered through the whole book as we go through. But look how we begin to see that in this breathtaking introduction in these first 14 verses. Verses 3 to 14 are actually one single sentence in the original language. No full stops, no pause for breath. Now I guess the translators didn't think we'd cope with that. Might have been a bit hard for Sarah to read it without pause for breath. But they, and, and, and you, know, you can see why, why they would do that. But it, it's as if Paul is overflowing with passion and joy as he writes these words. And he begins with praise. Praise where it belongs, with the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the centre of everything. Why? Why praise him? Because in Christ he has privileged us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now what does that mean? Well it means that when we reorient our lives so that God is at the centre, not me, we don't lose, we win. See, we get everything God can give us in the heavenly realms. Now that doesn't mean you know, a new car, a new house, or whatever it might be. This is, this is something much, much better than that. And we'll, we'll discover more about the heavenly realms as we go through the letter. But the heavenly realms are where Jesus is now. Where he's reigning with all authority. So he's saying, you have every possible blessing because in Jesus you are on the winning side. And the rest of this long sentence spells out what some of those spiritual blessings are. So let's look and see. First of all, as you can see on the outline, chosen and adopted. Verses 4 to 6. So verse 4, have a look. What's the first blessing that he wants to tell us about? Well, it's a bit surprising, isn't it? That Christians are chosen. Chosen to be holy and blameless. Predestined, he goes on, to be adopted as God's sons, God's children. Oh, I don't know, is that the first thing we would think of if we're kind of listing out blessings, of uh, the, the blessings in Christ? Lots of people find the idea of predestination very difficult. feels like something, you know, you should only really mention when absolutely necessary. Uh, and yet here it is, front and centre, in what Paul wants to share with the Ephesians. See, people say, well, you know, if, if God decides everything in advance, do I really have a choice? And actually the answer, as far as the Bible's concerned, is yes. Yes, you do, because actually that's how our creator God has set things up. Philosophers think, well, they've pushed God into a corner when they say, well, everything is either entirely free or entirely determined. But actually, God is bigger than that. Because he's God. And he says, I'm in charge, and he decides what happens. And yet he also says that we are responsible for our actions, that from the point of view that of, as we experience life, 
The choices we make are choices that we will be held account for. Now, if you want to know what Jesus made of this, um, you can find it. It's, it's particularly helpful to look at John's Gospel especially chapters 6 to 8 there, where again and again Jesus simultaneously says that God will save those he has chosen. But as he's saying that, even in the same sentence, he will also then issue an open invitation to anybody at all to come to him. So John 6, 37, first half of the verse, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. Jesus says. And then, second half of the verse, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Do you hear those two things together? The Father will give him those he has chosen, but anyone who comes to him, Jesus will never drive away. Both are true. Do you see? So this shouldn't then affect how we treat other people, because actually only God knows who he has chosen. We don't know who God has chosen. It's not as if we're supposed to go around going, hmm, are you chosen? Oh, I'm not sure. No, our, our job is to pray. Our job is to keep sharing the gospel. Our job is to trust that God will save his people as we do that. And sometimes then people fear, not for others so much, but for themselves, people think, well, but what if I'm not chosen? Well, actually, the evidence for whether you've been chosen before the creation of the world is whether today you believe in Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus today? Well, then you know that verse 4 is true of you. But, that, but Paul isn't writing to make things difficult or complicated He's writing because he, he thinks this is a privilege. This, if I, you know, of all the things I can, can write to say to these Christians to encourage them, top of the list, this is a privilege, a comfort, a blessing, a reason to praise God. You are chosen. Why is that? Well, it's the, it's the difference between standing outside Buckingham Palace, wondering what you can say to the guards to get yourself in to see the Queen, and standing there with a handwritten invitation from her to show to the gods. See the difference? See, if she's, if she's already chosen you, as it, as, it, as it were, you can have every confidence that she'll let you in. And more than that, what, what are we chosen? What are we predestined for? Not for duty, not for a life of drudgery, a life of never measuring up to the impossible expectations of a tyrant, but for adoption. This is a precious thing to hold on to in a world of increasing insecurity. You know, if you're at work and you're not sure, is it acceptable to take a lunch break and go home at the advertised time? We live in fear of what other people think of us. A Christian can rest in the approval we already have. Not because of anything worthy in us, but through the fact that we have been adopted as God's children. Again, when was it that God decided all this? Was it once he'd conducted a thorough interview process? He'd checked us out, he'd taken references, he'd ensured we were up to scratch good candidates for being his children? Well, no, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. 
He predestined us to be adopted as his sons. When was that? Before the creation of the world. Before we'd done anything. Before we'd even been born. And so now we can rest in that. There's a story of an adopted boy who goes to school and he gets bullied by the other children for being adopted. And this is incredibly difficult for him. It makes things miserable. Until one day something dawns on him. And he turns to these bullies as they taunt him. And he says, My parents chose me when they adopted me. Yours didn't have a choice. See, this is a spiritual blessing. To be able to call God Father. If you're a Christian today, praise him. Verse 3. If you're not, this is what is on offer. And then it just keeps getting better. Paul moves from these blessings from the past, verses 4 to 6, to the present, verses 7 to 8. Redeemed and forgiven. Secondly then, verses 7 to 8. Redeemed and forgiven. Look at verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Remember, the goal of these verses is praise. Paul wants us to realise our riches, our privilege. And he wants us to see that being redeemed and being forgiven are the consequences of God's grace. Being, well, not not dripped on us sparingly, not trickled on us uh, stingily, but, but God's grace being lavished on us more than generously. Is that how we think of redemption? Is that how we think of forgiveness? To be redeemed is to be bought out of slavery. It's not something you can do for yourself. It has to be done for you. It affects everything, your whole life. Now, whether we think of God's grace as being lavished on us or merely dripped or trickled on us will depend directly on whether we understand how extraordinary that redemption and forgiveness is. Look what it cost. Do you see? Verse 7, it cost Jesus' blood. What is that worth? Well, you can't put a figure on it, can you? It's of infinite value. And yet so often we think of forgiveness, we think of redemption as merely kind of tinkering around the edges of our lives. Well, you know, last Tuesday, I lost my temper. So, you know, I, I do need to be forgiven for that. It'd be a good idea to pray and ask, ask, thank God that Jesus died for me because that's the sort of thing that he died for. Those sort of little things that go wrong in daily life. But, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, doing all right, actually. Thanks very much. I'm, I'm okay. A bit like, you know, you order a pizza in a restaurant. You ever done this? And you, and you say, well, I'll have that one, but, but no olives, please. Uh, and the pizza comes, and unfortunately... Olives are very much present on the pizza. And you tell the waiter, and he whisks it away, and 30 seconds later, it's back. Same pizza, no olives. And when our view of redemption, forgiveness, is limited to the idea of Jesus kind of tinkering around the edges with isolated little sins, we will miss how this grace that God has poured on us is in any sense lavish because if you think back to the pizza what we need is not just little bits 
fixed, sort of cut off or removed or fixed. What we need is a whole new pizza. Turns out the dough is mouldy. Got to start again. We need a whole life saviour. And that is what God has given us in Jesus. So again and again in the Christian life, if we feel our love for God has gone cold, if we feel like we're going through the motions a little in our Christian life, if we're resentful of other people's successes, if we're struggling to forgive people close to us, we need to get back to appreciating afresh the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Sometimes that starts with just confessing our sins and then reminding ourselves of the glory of the gospel. That means we are forgiven, we can move on with a clean slate. Think how you feel if somebody buys you a really expensive, thoughtful gift that is exactly what you need. Isn't it brilliant? Well, if we don't think being redeemed and forgiven is that big a deal, that, you know, if we just sort of think it's, it's removing olives from the pizza, tinkering around the edges... Come back to God's grace. And if you're not yet a Christian, that is also where you need to look. If I ask you what's the best gift God could possibly give us right here, right now, we might come up with all kinds of answers about love and happiness and comfort or whatever. But Paul says God's people have been given every spiritual blessing and in particular they have been forgiven. Don't let this offer be the check you never cash. So Paul keeps moving from the past in verses 4 to 6 to the present in verses 7 to 8 and then finally to the future. So thirdly, a scale model of the future. In Christ we are a scale model of the future, verses 9 to 14. He's talked about what happened before the creation of the world, before time began. Now this is what, about what will happen at the very end of time. What's this all about? Where are we heading? Well, he says, verses 9 and 10, he's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfilment. What is it? What is this thing that's going to happen? To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head even Christ. What is now separated and in disharmony and at war will be brought together, united in Christ. Some will be brought willingly, some unwillingly. But as Paul puts it in Philippians, every knee will bow. Now this is a massive theme in the letter and we will come back to it again and again. But the point is, being a Christian... It's not about me and God having a one-to-one for eternity. Being a Christian is about being united with the body of Christ. He is the head. We are his body. We are united with all other Christians, praising him forever. It's a corporate thing. It's a together thing. It's not an individual thing. And we'll see, as we go through the letter, that this basically points to one big thing. This is what church is all about. You know when people say, well, do you, you, know, do you, do you really need to go to church to be a Christian? 
Because, you know, being in a garage doesn't make you a car. You know, people say, you know, just just sort of turn... A Christian is not just somebody who goes to church. A Christian is somebody who trusts in Jesus. That's what makes you a Christian, surely. So you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. And in one sense you say, well, yes, that's, that's right. It's about faith in Jesus. But actually, that's missing the point. Because church matters now because it's a foretaste of where we are heading. It's a scale model. We are heading towards being united under one head. Now, we're a bunch of sinners, so things can sometimes be difficult between us as Christians, but here's the thing. Ultimately, if you don't like church, you're going to hate heaven. If you don't like church, you'll hate heaven. You see, and when we, when we say heaven, we mean you know, the new heavens and the new earth, when everything is summed up in Jesus, when everything is united under him. Now, I don't mean that the new heavens and the new earth will be kind of about soft red chairs that aren't quite as comfortable after an hour of sitting on them, or kind of crumbly biscuits and cups of tea or an endless uh, church service, but it's about community. It's about the bringing together of God's people, no longer divided but united in Christ. Church ultimately isn't something that we go to, it's not an activity that we do, it's something that we are. It's a foretaste of who and what we will be for eternity. The bringing together, the uniting in advance of what one day will be united for all to see. The architect's scale model of how things one day will be for everyone. Many years ago, some relatives of mine who live in Canada bought a plot of land uh, by a lake in rural Ontario. And they designed the home they wanted and they, they got set about building it. But before they actually built the house itself, they produced a scale model of what it would look like. And I can remember seeing a, a sort of camcorder video that was sort of posted over, um, you know, back in the 80s kind of thing, you can imagine it. They sent this thing, where, where, and they, they, on this video that we watched on our TV, they, they walked around this model that they'd made with a torch, and they kind of showed how the sun would shine on the house at different times of the day and different times of the year. So they could make sure that just the house was pointing in exactly the right direction. And this is what it will be like at 11 o'clock in the morning, in the middle of July, you know, whatever it is. And the church is meant to be like that scale model. So that you can say, do you want to know what God's plan is for the world? Do you want to know the future, where, where everything is heaven, where, where, where everything is heading? Well, look at the church. Isn't that striking? Isn't it maybe a little bit surprising? We'll, we'll, we'll need to read the rest of the letter to understand exactly how that can be. But Paul begins to explain himself just a little in verses 11 to 14. Can you see there, he, he talks about we and then you. Verses 11 12, we, verses uh, 13 and 14, you. What's that mean? Well, we is we Jews who have come to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And you is you Gentiles. And this uniting that he talks about brings together Jew and Gentile, all different types of people, no longer divided by backgrounds or cultures or ways of doing things. Now, we'll see this later in more detail in chapters 2 and 3, but the principle is that anybody who trusts in Christ, whatever their background, whatever they've done, anybody can be part of the people of God by trusting, 
by believing. Can you see that in verse 13? They've heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation. Having believed, they're marked in him. See, church ought to be a place where an outsider would look in and think, what on earth are all these people doing together? Old and young, rich and poor, learned and, learned and uneducated, from many nations, Jew and Gentile. What could possibly bring these people together? Only Jesus. And you see that is a picture, it's a foretaste, a scale model of what is promised in verse 10. All things united under Christ. It starts now in the church. And we say, well, yeah, that, that sounds impossible. I mean, churches are hardly known for their unity, are they? And the, the, you know, the papers love to point things out whenever, whenever things go wrong. And Paul says, well, yes, but actually they ought to be. They ought to be known for that. And, and, and more than that, he gives us the Holy Spirit, verse 14, to ensure that what he promises actually happens. So it's not, this is not a sort of unity we have to drum up from within ourselves in the face of our sin. It's something that he gives us the Holy Spirit to bring about in us. And he'll, there'll be more about that in chapter 4. But um, the, the point is, church is this foretaste of heaven and the Holy Spirit is there to ensure that we will definitely get there. Sometimes I use this analogy, which isn't perfect in many ways, but the Holy Spirit is a bit like a spoon. And maybe I shouldn't admit to this, but, but sometimes when I'm invited round to somebody's house for a meal, I have that moment where I sit down at the table and I think, will there be pudding? Perhaps you're familiar with that feeling. It's, uh, it can be an anxious moment. But what is it above all that will give you the sure and certain hope of pudding. Well, it's the spoon set parallel to the table edge on the other side of the placement. See, the spoon is the down payment. It's the promise of pudding to come. Now, I said it wasn't a perfect analogy, but you see, the Holy Spirit is like is working in us like that spoon. It's a guarantee of what's to come. It's a guarantee that when there are signs of unity, Christians of different backgrounds and nations uniting around Jesus, when there are signs of faith, Christians choosing to follow Jesus, even when that's hard, even when they suffer in some sense for doing so, when those things happen, well, they're, they're the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in us. And that they, they then show... Because the Holy Spirit has been given us as a down payment, like a spoon, they show that the scale model is doing its job. And the inheritance that this scale model points to is definitely coming. What's it all for? For the praise of His glory. What a privilege. Wherever we stand with God today, let's not miss out on what we're offered in Christ. Let's not fail to cash in on the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms that we're offered for free when we trust in Jesus. God has a plan. It's for his glory. It's centred on Christ. And we can be part of it right here, right now, in his new community the church.
Father God, we praise you for how rich we are in Christ, in the heavenly realms, that you have blessed us with every spiritual blessing. May we never lose sight of the privilege of belonging to your people. If we're trusting in Jesus today, may we rejoice day by day in what you have made us to be, the privilege of taking our place, finding our part, fitting into your plan for the world, for Jesus, for your church. May we never lose the wonder. May we daily marvel. And may we, as we study this book in the coming weeks, may we see more and more what you are calling us to be as a church here in Hampstead, in London, wherever you call us to go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.